Well, good to be with you all on another Sunday. Yesterday was a complete joy. I know you heard about it in the announcements uh, in the welcome this morning, but seeing all those people get baptized and people just show up and a public declaration of faith is pretty cool. And uh, we love doing that. It's one of the reasons we do everything that we do. As much as we love what happens on Sunday, we say all the time that probably the most important things that happen do not happen between the hours of 9 and 11.30 a.m. here. And if you're curious, our service times are 9 and 10.30, so that's what happens. And so we, we hope that prepares people for the rest of the week. And so that, that was a big thing to celebrate. The other thing that was kind of interesting is I was looking back, and we realized that numbers don't mean everything, but every number is a person, every person is a story, and every story matters to God. And one of the cool things about our church is as I was looking back in January, February, March, Leading up to Easter, uh, our church has grown by about 15 or 20 percent, which is pretty pretty cool, and that's that's really something to celebrate. And so, we know that numbers don't mean everything, and we know that you know COVID helped us realize that you know for too long the church you know sacrificed at the altar of attendance, and we want to never go back to that. But we do also want to celebrate when God draws people to any church, including ours, um, and we want to use your time um, very respectfully, and we want to give the gospel to as many people as possible. So we will celebrate that. So every once in a while, hopefully I'll give you some good news. Or if I preach bad, then attendance will plummet and we'll be all over again. So it just depends on what it is. So we're in this series called Wisdom. We've got a couple of weeks left. And today we're going to talk about God gives and God takes. God gives, God takes. It's one of those Christian colloquialisms or a common saying that people take all the time. And sometimes we gloss over it. It's kind of like saying, oh, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And it's when we don't know what to say or how to explain something. We say a phrase like this, and it drives most of us nuts, um, especially people who are not Christian or people who are early Christian. We're like, oh, that's, I don't like how that works. And so to help with the problem, last week I made a lot of people upset by ending the message too early. And so I want to make sure to finish that um, because I ran out of time. So the, here we are today. And it was enticing to get you guys to come back. So I appreciate you doing that. So last week we did a couple of different things. We went through the first 38 chapters or so of Job. And what we did is we kind of talked about this idea of why do bad things happen to good people. It's one of the reasons that a lot of people in the world do not become a Christian or some version of this. It's also a reason that a lot of people have a problem with God, that the explanation of evil in the world is something that plagues mankind. We kind of don't understand it. And I think we're going to be able to answer this question today. So we talked about why do bad things happen to good people. We said, actually, the question we're really asking is, why did God let this happen to me? That's what we really want to know. We've personalized it. We've taken it personally because we're experiencing something that's terrible or someone we know and love is experiencing something that's terrible. And so this is really the question we're asking. And then we also found out that there are three things that every person wants to know when a bad thing happens to a good person. And these are the three things. We want an explanation, we want vindication, and we want salvation. And you get all of these in the book of Job. And so this story that happened many, many thousands of years ago, we're not quite sure when, is still applicable today. We still want an explanation, we still want vindication, and we still want salvation. You know, ultimately, we want to know, hey, I want to speak to the manager, in this case, God. Uh, I would like to be vindicated. I don't believe I deserve this. And then ultimately, we want that suffering to end. So we want all three 
of those. And last week, I kind of left a cliffhanger um, because we, we started by saying this, and the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Job 38 and 39. So if you don't know the story of Job, just let me give you a really quick synopsis of this story, is that Job is kind of smack dab almost in the middle uh, of the Bible, and it's this story about God allowing something bad to happen to this guy named Job, who is clearly an innocent and a good man. In fact, God himself um, corroborates this. Job says he's innocent. Scripture says he's innocent. God corroborates that and says, yep, he is innocent and good. And you got this theological interesting thing where Satan and God are talking with one another. And there's some issues with that, but not a ton because Jesus and Satan would have a conversation when Jesus goes off in the wilderness. So, so Satan is able to approach God and talk with him and challenge him and question him. <clears throat> so God allows Satan to do this and he allows Satan to do some bad stuff. Job, but he won't let him go so far. He won't let him take his life. He won't let him, you know, corrupt his soul or anything like that. And so Job experiences all this terrible stuff. His livestock is gone. His wealth is gone. His family is gone. He's in physical pain. And throughout, like, pretty much chapters 3 to about 37 or so, it's, they're trying to find an answer to the question, why did this bad thing happen to this good man, Job? And what's interesting along the way are a few different things. Is that one, Job uses the tetragrammaton, which is the four letters that determine God's name, Yahweh, in Jewish culture and religion, they often wouldn't say the name of God out of respect. And so a lot of times in the book of Job, Elohim, the powerful God, is used. Job uses the name Yahweh a few different times. But most of the time, it's kind of this general way of describing who God is. And then finally, when God answers, his name is used. So this is a personal confrontation between Job and God. And also along the way, there's this thing that goes back and forth between Job and his friends. It's Essentially, there's a couple different perspectives, and probably there's perspectives that you and I have, but not the one that we actually need. So from Job's perspective, he wants to be vindicated. Throughout this entire time, Job says something, then his friends rebut. Job says something, and his friends rebut. And even his wife gets in there, and that, that does not go well if you were here last year, or last year, last week, and uh, it didn't go well. And so what happens is Job, is this, this whole time, was basically demanding an audience with God, saying, I need to speak to the manager. I want God to vindicate me. He knows I'm innocent. I haven't done anything. And so he's trying to get God to agree with him. He wants God to appear to say, Job, you're right. You are innocent. You are vindicated. Man, I was just asleep on the job. I can't believe I let all this stuff happen to you. Now that I'm awake, I'll correct it. And then you got Job's friends on the other side. And his friends are trying to convince Job that, hey, you missed something in your life. You must have sinned somewhere. God is getting you back, and he's trying to get you back on the right path, which is why all of these bad things are happening. And Job's friends are trying to get God to agree with them. They're saying, Job, you've missed out on some portion of your life. There's some secret sin. There's something you've done wrong. You've offended God in some way, shape, or form. And now both of those kind of sound right, given your perspective of the story. You're like, man, I could see how their friends who are trying to ascribe to bad things don't happen to good people. There's got to be an explanation. You had to do something bad. So each party is trying to get God to agree with them. And it's the wrong approach, and it's not the lesson that we should get from this story. It's not about Job being right, that he is innocent. And it is not about his friends being right, that when bad things happen to good people, it's probably because they deserve it. Neither of those, to put too fine a phone on this, are the purpose of this story. Did I make that clear? 
Neither of those are the purpose of the story. So we got to get to the purpose. So after all this happens, uh, a couple of his friends talk, and then this young man named Melihu talks, and he gives this long, eloquent speech. And on the distance, you know, he's communicating, and he sees a storm approaching, and he uses the storm as an illustration of God's power. And he starts this eloquent speech that just sounds good. You're like, ah, oh, God's so powerful. It's kind of like this storm that's coming. And you, you, you begin to nod your head. Like, that seems like a worthwhile explanation. It's all about God's power and stuff. And then God finally shows up. And the storm is here, and there is a whirlwind happening. So wind is blowing all around. There's a, you know, a, a, a vision or a visual of God's power. And then finally God speaks. Again, he's been silent for like 37 chapters or something like that. He's watched people like bloviate and have these big speeches. And he's like, all right, I'm going to finally come and I'm going to give you the reason all this has happened. I'm going to tell you why this is important. And he starts off as a challenge. He says, who is this? Now, God is speaking. Yahweh is speaking to Job personally. Job got what he asked for. And when you want an audience with God, you better be prepared. You don't always want this. So what happens is God says, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Off to a great start, right? Great start. Get ready to answer me like a man. Now he's calling it his manhood. Oh, this cannot be good, right? It's like a street fight. Hey, you're, you know what? Step up like a man with your big words. Let's confront each other. And this is essentially what Job asked for. He said, when I question you, you will inform me. Okay, tough guy, Job. Let me ask you some questions. And spoiler alert here, God is going to ask him a bunch of rhetorical questions, and the reason he's setting it up this way is he's basically answering Job's challenge to a degree. He's basically saying, I'm going to ask you a series of questions, almost like an interview. If you can get all of these questions right, and if you haven't answered all these questions, you have a right to question my actions and my thoughts. So let's begin, shall we? Spoiler, it does not go well. <laughs> it does not go well. He says, where were you when I established the earth? Oh, yeah, you weren't born. That's right. You weren't born. That's right. I, I was alive because I've always existed. I was there. You know, have you traveled to the sources of the sea or walked the depths of the ocean? Can you even do that, Job? Oh, no, you would, you would crush under the weight of the pressure at the bottom of the sea. And you wouldn't survive trying to walk the depths of the ocean. That's right. You can't do that, huh? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? You know, Job several times in his speech, he says, man, I should have just died. Then I'd be laying down with my ancestors and the kings of old. He feels like he knows where he's going when he dies. And God says, you got no clue what death is like. God's like, I am an eternal being. I've always existed. I've watched generations die. I know exactly what death is like. And there's so much poetry in God's incredible speech. He said, you know, do you know what road leads to the place where light is dispersed? This isn't even possible. Like light doesn't come from a road. God also says a few things. He said, do you know where the storerooms are where I keep the snow and the hail? Like it's, it's interesting language. It's poetic language. Like God is trying to explain something that human beings cannot understand. Like store, we all know snow is not kept in a storeroom. We know that. Even Job knew that. 
But God's trying to dumb it down for this ignorant man. He's like, yeah, I keep all the snow in the back. <laughs> like, he doesn't know what he's talking about, right? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you impose its authority on earth? Oh, yeah, you've never been to heaven. You got no clue what it's like. You think I'm supposed to work a certain way, but you've never even paid me a visit, and you've got no authority up there and no authority on earth. Check out this poetic thing he does, too. Can you send out the lightning bolts? And they go, do they report to you? Hey, here we are. Hey, we're ready to hit some trees. Let's do this. You know, it's, it's a personification. Again, he's, he's dumbing down like omnipotent, godlike powers to an insignificant person. He's like, you, you don't even understand how the world works or the universe works. Do you give strength to the horse and maybe almost insultingly dumbs it down even more? Okay, let's just stick with animals, okay? Maybe you know those. Do you give strength to the horse? Do you adorn his neck with a mane? Was it you that created all of the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea? Was it you in our research and development department when we were putting together animals? Were you there for that? Were you there where we created mosquitoes? No. Like, I wish you were, because that one was a mistake. And then they just went out that way, and his back. We could have used another set of eyes on that one. But the horse, amazing, right? Were you there? Are you the person that when you see a horse running, you go, the mane? My idea. My idea. <laughs> no. Do you see how ridiculous these questions are? Like, they're ridiculous questions, purposefully. Does the eagle soar at your command and make its nest on high? Did you program an eagle to, to go up to the highest place to build a nest for its offspring and take care of them there and to push them out when it's time to fly? Did you, did you do that? Oh, no, that was me. Again, that's right. It was me, God, not you. And this goes on. I've just given you like eight. He asks so many more than these. And at the end of it, you know, Job is looking there, you know, talking with God. And don't, don't forget, this is not a calm conversation where God sits him down in a chair. Like there's a whirlwind happening around him. He's yelling. He's like, okay, you can stop now. He's like, no, we're not going to stop. Because I listened to you and your silly friends for like 36 chapters. And you're going to listen to me now. And so he tells him. And then Job, he gets the point. Again, this is just chapters 38 and 39. And then there's 40. And then there's 41. This is God for like four chapters. And during which Job interjects a few times. And he's, he's like, okay, I'm insignificant. And God's like, no, you have not gotten the point. You have not gotten the point. And so Job finally tells him, he says in this, in Job chapter 42, he says, God, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. And you asked me, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand. Things too wondrous for me to know. And God's like, you're catching on. You said to me, God, listen now and I will speak. And when I question you, you will inform me. I had heard reports about you. Like Job has never met God. He's going off reports. 
Like he's going, it's like, okay, I read a few articles and now I'm an expert, right? You go on the, online and you read a few things and then you like spout off stuff like we know stuff. Like, no, we can't do that. You will inform me. I have heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my own words. And I'm sorry that I said them because I am dust and ashes. And everything gets put in perspective. Now, this is kind of a lofty way of describing us. I wanted to give you a different way, a stupid way of describing this. And the stupidity is from here. Okay. So one time, uh, years ago, when I was working at a different church and we were kind of going from one place to the next, I was in a plane and I don't normally get nervous on planes. But planes are kind of interesting because they give you a perspective on the land and everywhere else that you're going that you just don't get from land. And I've been on planes for a long time, you know, ever since I was little. And so you think when you've flown enough times that you know enough about a plane and how it works and where it should go, and you get kind of an arrogance of like, I want to sit here and I want to go to this place and this is how long it should take and there should be nothing that happens uh, in between. So I happen to be sitting next to this pastor who I work with, and we noticed our plane took a little bit of an embankment. And I was like, I'm terrible with directions, so please never ask me for directions. But I knew enough that I had a phone, and I was like, we are not going in the right direction. And the guy next to me had had some military training. I can't tell you what it is, because top secret, he'd probably kill me. But he had, some, he had some military training, and he turns to me, he said, one of the engines is failing. I was like, that's not what I want to hear. <laughs> not at all. And he goes, he goes, yeah, the embankment's because the pilot is looking for a place to land. And I said, we're still two hours from our destination. And he's like, we're probably not going to make it there. You see that highway down there? He's scoping it out. I was like, there's no way that's possible. And he's like, oh, yeah, one of the engines doesn't work anymore. And I look outside, and I was like, well, it's not on fire. And he's like, does the engine have to be on fire to not work? And I was like, okay, I was dumb. I get it. And so he's like, that one doesn't work. He's like, here's what's going to happen. In a minute or two, the pilot's going to come on on the speaker, and he's going to say, hey, uh, we're, we're going to be making an emergency landing somewhere else. I'm looking for a place to land, yada, yada, yada. A couple minutes go by, and he goes, ah, your captain's speaking. And I was like, no way, <laughs> right? And he, for sure, he says, he says, hey, don't want to make you guys panic. You know, one of our engines um, has, has, has stopped working. Uh, he said it very kind, but all you hear is like, we're all going to die, and we're going down. That's all you hear. <laughs> and so he's talking about this. He's like, hey, we're going to try to land at this other airport. There are some places in between here and there, and I'm thinking freeway. Um, And I was like, this is like a movie. It's crazy. And so he's like, we're going to try to make it to this other airport. Here are my stupid thoughts during this. Can I share you with this? Like, don't tell anybody. Hopefully we're not recording this, but don't tell anybody. Here are my stupid thoughts. I was like, I have to get home. (laughs) Like, maybe we can make it. You know, can't we just continue to go? You know, or I was just like, let's not land on the freeway there. Let's just find some other place. Like, I'm a pilot, and I've had training, and I know exactly what's going on, right? I got no clue. And the guy I'm next to, I'm like, well, what's going to happen? He's like, well, we're probably going to land at this other airport. And again, if we had an emergency, we had to go there. And I was like, can we go up there and just tell him to go? And he's looking at me like, you are so dumb. And I'm like, yeah, I am so dumb. And there's a couple things here. It's like, one, I was concerned. I was concerned. I was like, how do I explain this to my wife? How am I going to tell her I'm home late? And in my head, I didn't think the plane going down somewhere is a legitimate reason to be late, right? (laughs) All my time, I'm just thinking, I'm like, she's going to be upset at me because I'm going to be a couple hours late. Like, so dumb. Here's the reason I tell you this story. I have no experience in piloting. I've never been to the cockpit of a plane. I've been a passenger 
on a plane uh, lots of times. And sometimes I think that gives me the perspective that I know what's going on. And you and I, in our lives, are far greater passengers than we think. To not make this too corny, God has always been and will always be the pilot. Always. Doesn't matter what's going on. And we think it's sometimes because we've lived a little and because we think we know where God is going, that when something bad happens in our life or good happens in our life or something just happens, that we have a say in the matter. And then you got to go to Job and you got to realize that God says, where were you when I did all this? And you have to go, ah, I wasn't there. You know, in the middle of this discourse, God asks Job a question. It's a very powerful question. It's easy to read over. And it's a question that you and I need to understand and put into perspective. In chapter 40, going back a couple chapters, God says this, would you really challenge my justice? And would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? You know what the answer to this question is? Yes. The answer to this question is always yes. We always question God's justice because we wouldn't do it the way he did it. We always question the good and the bad because it's not how we would do things. And if we're honest, we will declare God guilty to justify ourselves. You know how I know that? Because Jesus was declared guilty. We executed him for it, right? We didn't say he was innocent because the Romans weren't in business of killing innocent people, at least publicly. And the Jewish rabbis wanted him guilty to justify their means. The answer to this question is always yes. We will always declare God guilty because we don't want to be guilty. We will always put him on the cross because we don't want to be there. We will always say it's his fault because we don't want to admit sometimes it's our fault. And we'll always attribute bad things happening to good people to him rather than we live in a fallen world. And bad things happen. And we forget that God is ultimately in control. We want so desperately to walk down the aisles, to knock on the pilot's cabin and say, hey, I got some suggestions. And we got no shot of going there. We shouldn't even be allowed on the plane. I mean, again, not to stretch the analogy too far, but the fact that God would take us for a ride in his direction, we shouldn't ask why bad things happen to good people. We should ask why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to us at all? You know, Jesus promised very few things. Here's one of the things he promised. Servants of God are guaranteed to experience temporary suffering. We should never even ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? We should happen, when will something bad happen to the people who are following the good God? Jesus guarantees that in this world, you will have hardship and trouble. He said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He promised that something would bad happen to you. Again, we should never ask this question, why do bad things happen to good people? We should ask when and how do we deal with them? Because Jesus ultimately said, you will, if you follow me, you will have hardship in this life. Guaranteed. 
But that's not the end. Because the second half of the sentence is this, and eternal glory. Both, both are what we're promised. So when we think, why do bad things happen to good people? We must put into perspective that God is ultimately in control and he is taking us to a place we could not get ourselves. We must trust in him along the way because the destination is not temporary relief. It's eternal glory with him. I use this quote all the time because it helps remind me and give me perspective. It's by St. Augustine. You've, have, you've heard me say it a bunch of times. God had one son without sin, never one without suffering. Not even Jesus himself could get out of something bad happening to him. In fact, that was the plan. And we could ask it this way, you know, why did God let this happen to me? This is the question we've been asking. But maybe we should ask it this way, why did God suffer and die for me? See, the name of this title, the title of this message is called God Gives and God Takes. And can I tell you, what do we almost always park on? What did God take from me? What did God take? He took a relative. He took my finances. He took my health. And I don't even think all the times it's him doing the taking. I think we live in a fallen world and things don't work right. But why so often do we focus on what he has taken and we forget what he has given? He's given us the horse and the lightning bolt and the endless sea and life and kids and families and truth and justice, mercy, grace. Did I mention life? Like why do we always, or maybe not always, most of the time, concentrate on what he has taken and forget and minimize what he has given. Well, not all the taking is bad. Taking isn't always bad from us. We can say it this way, you know, God gave his son to take your sin and to give you life. Notice that there is two gives and one take in this sentence because I wanted to emphasize the fact, the point that Job missed, and you and I often miss, that God gives far more than he takes. And even in the taking, he took something from you and I, if you're a Jesus follower, that we desperately needed him to take. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to go into a time of communion next, because the best way for you to remember this is to realize what God has given and what God has taken. We must never miss this. And it's the point that Job missed. God explained yourself to me. He's like, I don't have to do that. If you read the book of Job, you realize God never directly answers Job's question because he's asking the wrong ones. He doesn't explain to Job. He doesn't agree with Job. He doesn't say, hey, Job, you're right. You are innocent. I shouldn't let all that stuff happen. He doesn't agree with his friends and say, you know, Job, someday you're going to do something terrible. That's why I let all this happen. And he totally dodges all of those questions. And he said, you know, Job, at the end of the day, I'm God. And I really don't have to explain myself to you. And maybe that sounds cold. But at the end of the day, I have provided you with everything that you need. You would not exist without me. Don't forget that fact. Don't forget the fact the entire world and everything revolves around me. And at the end of the story of Job, God chooses to bless him. He gives him back more than he ever gave. 
And in his son, Jesus Christ, he has given us more than we ever deserve. So here's what I'm inviting you to do. Over the next three songs, or a couple songs that we have, come up and get the communion on either side. And when you go back to your seats, will you thank God for what he has given? Not all the things that he has taken, except for one. Thank you for taking my sin. And thank you for giving me life. If you're not a Christian, and, but you would like to respond to this message by receiving Christ, you're invited to take communion. If you're not a Christian, communion is not for you. You don't know what it's like to have your sin taken yet. And we hope you do. I'm going to pray for us. During these next two songs, come up and get communion when you're ready. Go back to your seats and thank God for what he's given you. Father, we thank you for this, <clears throat> this time and Job's story. Job meeting, uh, God meeting you in a whirlwind like Job did would be terrifying. And Lord, we're grateful that you met with us on a hill. You took the world's sin, and those of us who have said yes to you are so grateful for that gift. And remind us of all that you have given us throughout our lives and ultimately in Jesus Christ and for eternal glory with you. Help us minimize not what you have given, but what you have taken and all the things in our life that we wouldn't have taken ourselves. Lord, thank you for giving us your son. We did not make you. You chose to. In your son's name, Jesus. Amen.